0: Hello and welcome to the PCICS podcast. My name is Elizabeth Price, PA at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford, where I care for children in the cardiovascular intensive care unit as an advanced practice provider. This is episode number two of a three-part series on pediatric cardiac ECMO or VA ECMO. In our first episode, we discussed indications for VA ECMO and the process of ECMO cannulation. Today, we will provide an overview of the ECMO circuit components and explore aspects of patient management. In our final episode, we will be discussing ECMO circuit emergencies, complications associated with ECMO, decannulation, and outcomes data. I'm joined again by…
1: Hi, my name is Kate Ryan. I'm Associate Medical Director of the CVICU at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford and the Director for Cardiac ECMO.
2: Hi, I'm Ozzy Jahadi, Pediatric perfusionist at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford and the ECMO program coordinator and educator.
3: Hello everyone, my name is Alan Shu, and I'm an RN ECMO specialist. I'm also the ventricular assist device educator and I'm one of the critical care educators for the CVICU.
0: In the show notes, we've included a diagram of an ECMO circuit which may be beneficial to view as you listen to this episode. In our last episode, we shared the case of a three-year-old patient with myocarditis who was electively cannulated onto VA ECMO in the setting of cardiogenic shock. Ozzy, can you describe for the audience the pathway of the patient's blood flow through the circuit and explain the function of each area of the ECMO
2: circuit? Sure, starting at the patient, the venous cannula, which is in this case was placed in the internal jugular vein, drains the blood from the patient's right atrium into the ECMO circuit. Blood is pulled through the tubing via pump. The pump can be either a roller head or a centrifugal pump, as we described in our previous episode. The rate of the rotation of the pump dictates the rate of the drainage of the blood from the patient. Blood passes through the pump head and is pushed through the membrane oxygenator, which acts as an artificial lung. This is where the gas exchange takes place. A blender can be adjusted to deliver FiO2 into the oxygenator. As blood passes through the hollow fibers of the membrane, oxygen diffuses across the membrane into the blood. To increase oxygen delivery to the patient, you can easily increase the FiO2 to the circuit without adjusting the ECMO blood
1: flow. That's an important point, Ozzy. To increase oxygen delivery to the patient, you can go up on the FiO2 to the circuit and you do not necessarily have to increase your circuit flow.
2: Yes, and now how we handle carbon dioxide is different. Carbon dioxide is removed from the blood by the sweep gas, which is set at the flow rate in liters per minute. As the sweep gas flows through the oxygenator, carbon dioxide diffuses out through the vent ports of the oxygenator. To remove more CO2 from the patient, the sweep gas rate is increased. The circuit blood flow rate is also measured in liters per minute and is set by the rotation per minute on the pump or RPM. As we described in our last episode, after blood has undergone gas exchange, through the oxygenator, it is returned to the patient via the arterial cannula. Another aspect of the oxygenator is blood temperature control.
0: The oxygenator is connected to an external heat exchanger that allows us to cool or warm the blood as it travels through the membrane. It's important to note that this feature can mask fever or increase body temperature, since blood temperature is controlled by the ECMO circuits heat exchanger. So other signs of infection need to be closely monitored.
3: Thanks, Liz. We also transduce pressure readings, which help us to monitor overall circuit health and performance. As ECMO specialists, we are physically at the pump at all times, monitoring these pressures very closely, in addition to the rest of our patient's hemodynamics. On the venous side of the ECMO circuit, blood is drained from the patient towards the ECMO pump. We measure a venous pressure, which tells us how much negative force in millimeters of mercury is being generated, It's a very important parameter to monitor because all ECMO and mechanical circulatory support systems rely on adequate intravascular volume to function. For example, if I'm starting my day with a venous pressure of negative 30, which is reasonable, and my patient loses volume due to blood loss or perhaps increased urine output, my venous pressure will become more negative and may go to something like negative 50. If a patient becomes intravascularly depleted, we'll have to increase the rotational speed of our ECMO pump to maintain our target flows. This in turn generates a higher negative force which can lead to serious complications such as hemolysis, vessel injury, and even air entrainment. This will be discussed in detail in our third episode. We're able to set pressure limits on these pumps so that if the circuit becomes too negative, the circuit's gonna either slow down or stop entirely. So monitoring fluid status, central venous pressure, and other hemodynamics is very important when managing an ECMO circuit.
2: I also want to point out that it's common to hear the terms of chatter, chugging, or rattling. These terms refer to the suction on the venous cannula that is causing pulsating movement of the ECMO tubing. This is due to the mismatch of patient's venous drainage to the circuit flow. Therefore, when someone says that the circuit is chattering, it means that they're experiencing flow fluctuation, and in order to maintain a full flow, it may be necessary to
1: give some volume. Thanks, Ozzy. Of important note, the venous pressure may also become negative due to a venous cannula malposition. Venous cannulas have multiple drainage ports on them, and we have to be very careful when positioning patients in the bed to optimize drainage. Now, Depending on where the patient is cannulated, sometimes even the slightest change in the angle of the patient's neck or hips, if it's a femoral cannulation, can affect that venous drainage. Most of our ECMO circuits are pressure regulated, so if the venous pressures become too negative, the circuit will alarm, alerting us to the fact that there are flow fluctuations or even no blood flow at all. Correcting the problem is important to maintain the ECMO flow to the patient.
2: In addition to venous pressure monitoring, we also monitor pressures before and after the membrane. The pressure differential, which we also call the delta P or transmembrane, Gradient provides us with an overall indication of the health of the membrane. An increase in the delta P can be a sign of increase in the clot burden of the membrane. This can affect the membrane ability to oxygenate or having to clear the CO2 from the blood. In extreme circumstances, if there are too much clot in the membrane, the circuit may abruptly be unable to flow.
3: Thanks Ozzy, great points. Because the ECMO circuit is essentially an extension of the patient's circulation, the patient's blood has now come into contact with the polyurethane surfaces of the tubing as well as the oxygenator hollow fibers. All of these foreign surfaces along with areas of turbulence such as at connector sites will activate the patient's coagulation cascade. Patients are then at risk of clotting and that can have important consequences for the health of the circuit and clots on the arterial limb will also place a patient at risk of stroke and other thrombotic complications. Clots forming before the pre-membrane can be monitored and generally speaking, if they dislodge, the membrane will trap them. Clots post-membrane, however, on the arterial limb are much more serious and if they dislodge, they can completely thrombose the arterial cannula or travel to the patient's brain and cause a stroke. Our center has a very low threshold for intervening on any deposits on the arterial side. Our surgeons can isolate and cut out clotted areas, and in some cases, we'll even elect to just change the entire circuit out.
1: That's a great point, Alan. Now, as you said, exposure to the circuit and the turbulent flow at various places along the circuit, as well as the membrane itself, can activate a patient's coagulation cascade. Because of this, patients often require anticoagulation. ECMO patients walk a fine line between both bleeding and clotting. Infant and pediatric patients in particular are challenging because the hematologic profile of their coagulation system is quite variable depending on the patient's age. Heparin is a commonly used agent both because of familiarity with use as well as because it has a reversal agent if needed. More recently, other agents such as direct thrombin inhibitors, in particular bivalirudin, are being utilized. And while bivalirudin does not have a reversal agent, it does have a short half-life that can vary with age, but in the pediatric population, it ranges from somewhere around 15 to 20 minutes. Coagulation labs need to be followed at regular intervals while patients are on ECMO, and constant vigilance for the presence of clot in the circuit is very necessary.
3: Thanks, Kate. I also want to point out that good communication and collaboration among team members are essential to managing a stable and successful ECMO run. There are many considerations and parameters related to circuit monitoring and management. Some key information that should be communicated when you are conveying the specifics of the performance of a VA ECMO circuit to a colleague during handoffs and during daily rounds to promote a shared mental model can include a summary of the patient's cardiac disease and indication for ECMO support, the type of ECMO circuit that you're using, for example, rollerhead versus centrifugal, cannulation locations, as well as the cannula sizes, verifying placement of cannulas via chest X-ray and external measurement, target flows for the patient and the cardiac index that we're aiming for, or perhaps we're um, aiming for cc's per kilo per minute of flow, sweep gas rates, as well as any addition of carbon dioxide if that is being used, circuit FiO2, negative venous pressures, as well as pre and post membrane pressures, as well as the transmembrane gradient. And most importantly, the trend of the transmembrane gradient That is, if it's been increasing by one to two per day or by 10 in the last hour, as the rate of change could prompt immediate intervention. Anticoagulation strategies, as well as their target parameters, lab results that can include a CBC or coagulation studies, the amount and type of blood products that have been given, the overall physical description of the circuit, including any concerning clots, any complications during the ECMO run thus far, and priorities for the next shift.
0: A patient that is well supported by VA ECMO will have evidence of adequate cardiac output, a warm exam, good perfusion, and in some cases, patients may have pulses as well. We'll shift gears now to specific considerations related to the care of a patient receiving ECMO support.
1: Management of a patient on ECMO is often dependent on why the patient required ECMO support to begin with. If the underlying cause is known and reversible, it should be treated, such as would be the case with sepsis. Now, Many times for patients who require ECMO support for cardiac indications, such as patients who are unable to separate from bypass or those who are post-arrest, it's important to allow for myocardial rest to promote recovery. In these instances, we'll often avoid the use of ionotropes, if possible, to decrease myocardial oxygen demand. Instead, we utilize the circuit flow for cardiac output. Higher circuit flow not only increases oxygen delivery to end organs, it decompresses the heart, which can also help with recovery of function. Now if the patient doesn't exhibit signs of myocardial recovery, such as increased pulsatility, Further investigation is warranted, and cardiac catheterization should be considered early to identify residual lesions or other potentially reversible etiologies of cardiac failure. Remember, ECMO is a temporary bridge to cardiac recovery, ventricular assist device, or transplant. If a patient has been deemed a candidate for transplantation, then the decision regarding ventricular assist device candidacy should be expedited. Uh, the greater the duration of a patient's ECMO course, the higher the likelihood that a patient will acquire complications. Therefore, the medical team should be very aggressive in pursuing any clinical investigation necessary to uncover underlying disease contributing to the patient's failure to make clinical progress. Cardiac catheterization and obtaining imaging such as a CT on ECMO are feasible, though they require extensive team communication and coordination. Often, because we are trying to decompress and rest the heart by utilizing higher flows, a patient may have too generous of blood pressure, and afterload-reducing agents such as nipride and clovidipine are needed. Avoiding hypertensions in infants is especially important as they have a higher risk of intracranial hemorrhage. Now, as I noted in the last session, it's important to carefully monitor end-organ labs to assure yourself the patient has adequate ECMO support. So, if the patient's lactate isn't clearing or the creatinine is continuing to rise, the patient may require higher flow to deliver more cardiac output. Occasionally, if you're unable to achieve adequate flow, the cannula itself may need to be upsized.
0: One of the issues that can come up in patients supported on VA ECMO for cardiac indications is left atrial hypertension. This can occur if the left ventricle has lost contractility resulting in high left atrial pressures that in turn can cause pulmonary edema and if left untreated, pulmonary hemorrhage.
1: That's correct. While VA ECMO directly drains the right side of the heart by virtue of the venous cannula, it does not directly drain the left side of the heart. Because there is still some venous return from bronchial vessels to the left side of the heart, if the ventricle lacks contractility, this blood can back up and cause the issues Liz just described. In these cases, left atrial hypertension needs to be addressed through an atrial septostomy or placement of a left atrial vent. Both of these interventions can be done in the catheterization lab, or surgical placement of a left atrial vent can also be done if the patient has an open chest.
2: Yes, thanks Kate. I also like to point out that atrial septostomy often provides adequate left atrial decompression for smaller patients less than 30 kilo. Patients that are greater than 30 kilo may require a venous cannula to be advanced through the septostomy into the left atrium. This cannula is then wide into the venous tubing for a pump-assisted left
1: atrial decompression. So we've discussed utilizing the circuit to provide cardiac output. Because on VA ECMO, the patient's blood is bypassing the lungs, the ECMO circuit also needs to be utilized for gas exchange. Now, as Ozzy pointed out earlier, oxygen can be delivered to the circuit blood via the blender. Clearance of carbon dioxide is accomplished via the sweep gas rate. To clear more carbon dioxide, the sweep is increased. Because membranes have become so efficient, carbon dioxide may actually need to be added to the circuit to prevent the patient's carbon dioxide from dropping too low.
3: Thanks, Kate. I also wanted to point out that while on VA ECMO, even though the lungs are not being utilized primarily for gas exchange, it is important not to allow them to completely collapse. In the event the circuit goes down, the patient is entirely dependent on their own ability to exchange gas via their lungs. That being said, lung protective ventilation is an often used strategy while on ECMO to prevent volutrauma, barotrauma, and atelectrauma, as well as oxygen toxicity associated with high vent settings, given the patient is not dependent on the lungs for gas exchange. An example of lung rest settings while on ECMO would be a PEEP of 10, a vent rate of 10, a delta pressure of 10. This strategy has proven for us to provide good lung protection during ECMO support.
1: That's a great point, Alan. Every ECMO patient should have predetermined emergency ventilator settings accessible at the bedside. Occasionally, a patient will need to be emergently disconnected from the ECMO circuit without warning, whether it be due to clot, pump failure, air embolus, or tubing rupture. The patient will need to resume the work of oxygenation and ventilation without delay. We'll cover ECMO emergencies and troubleshooting in greater detail during episode three, but for the purposes of this discussion, I would make the point that you should always have a contingency plan in the event that you need to separate the patient urgently from the ECMO circuit.
0: Returning to the case of our three-year-old myocarditis patient that was cannulated onto VA ECMO in the last episode, let's examine her initial ECMO settings and break down the process of making adjustments to the circuit. The three very basic variables that you typically manipulate on the ECMO circuit to impact cardiac output and gas exchange for the patient are the blood flow rate in mls per kilo per minute, the sweep rate reported in liters per minute, and FiO2. These parameters are adjusted by manipulating the dials on the circuit, and you can see an image of this in the attached show notes.
2: The initial ECMO circuit setting for our 12 kilo patients are flow of 100 ml per kilo per minute, sweep rate of 1.2 liters per minute, FiO2 of 60% to 80%. Typically, the sweep rate is set at a one-to-one ratio with the patient's blood flow rate. For instance, because this patient was flowing at 100 mL per kilo per minute, for a total of 1.2 liters per minute of the blood flow, the sweep rate is set at the same rate. The initial gas setting is recommended by the manufacturer of the oxygenator we use at our facility. Gas settings may need adjustment based on our patient's arterial blood gas results once on ECMO.
0: On the monitor, our patient has a mean arterial pressure of 60 with about 15 points of pulsatility, meaning the absolute difference between the systolic and diastolic blood pressure. We obtain an arterial blood gas immediately after our patient is placed on ECMO support. The pH for this blood gas is as follows, 7.25, PCO2 of 60, PAO2 of 120, bicarb of 21, and lactate of four. In this case, it would be reasonable to increase the sweep to adjust the CO2 clearance from the blood and increase the pH of the patient. Broadly speaking, manipulation of the sweep gas rate can be thought of in similar terms as how one would adjust a non-ECMO patient's ventilator to treat respiratory acidosis or alkalosis. Increasing the sweep gas rate on an ECMO circuit will clear more CO2 and increase the patient's pH. Conversely, decreasing the sweep gas rate will increase the patient's CO2 and result in a decrease in the patient's pH. An elevated lactate is expected in our patient with cardiogenic shock who has just been cannulated onto ECMO given her pre-ECMO physiology. However, if the patient does not have a reassuring exam and other markers of end-organ function, such as the serum creatinine or the liver function tests are abnormal, there is potential that the ECMO circuit blood flow rate is not adequate, and therefore, the flow rate should be increased. Although a target mean arterial pressure is customized to each patient, the general goal is to provide a mean arterial pressure that delivers adequate end-organ perfusion. Typically, this would correlate with good perfusion on exam and a measured mixed venous SAT of about 70 with a serum lactate of less than 2.5.
2: So in our myocarditis case, if we increase the ECMO circuit blood flow from the 100 ml per kilo per minute to 120 ml per kilo per minute, then the expected impact would be an increased mean arterial blood pressure in the patient and the increased end organ perfusion. As we slowly up-titrate ECMO circuit flow, it is not uncommon to confront the limitation of the ECMO circuit the negative venous pressure will increase as the circuit attempts to drain the blood from the patient at the higher flow rate until it counters the threshold at which the circuit will cut out and interrupts the flow to the patient. If the patient is hypovolemic due to the blood loss or third spacing from the sepsis, providing volume resuscitation in form of a blood or crystalloid may restore appropriate ECMO flow. If the ECMO circuit can't deliver
0: adequate flow to provide sufficient hemodynamic support, you can consider other strategies such as employing vasoactive medications to increase mean arterial blood pressure of your patient, or you can also limit the metabolic demands of the patient through the utilization of deep sedation with neuromuscular blockade. As we previously discussed, sometimes the size or position of the cannula becomes a fixed resistor limiting the rate of blood flow and upsizing and or repositioning the ECMO cannulas is indicated.
1: Even when we are able to achieve ECMO flows that provide adequate end organ perfusion, many VA ECMO patients struggle from the sequelae of fluid overload from a variety of causes. One of the advantages of the ECMO circuit is that you can perform ultrafiltration of the blood, effectively decreasing the central venous pressure of the patient by taking volume off, which is often desired to optimize hemodynamics. If the patient requires solute clearance due to acute injury or failure, CROT can also be performed via the ECMO circuit. In general, our institutional approach is to utilize the patient's native renal function as much as possible before employing ultrafiltration to safeguard against unintended volume depletion, potentially leading to an added pre-renal insult to the kidneys. Employing
0: ultrafiltration can be particularly beneficial in situations where clinical priorities necessitate administering large volumes of fluid for nutrition and medications. TPN, or total parenteral nutrition, is an example of this. We know from previous studies that patients who have compromised nutrition are less likely to survive to hospital discharge. Therefore, if we are unable to deliver enteral feeds via a feeding tube, TPN is administered to provide necessary calories, protein, fats, electrolytes, and vitamins to support wound healing and metabolic demands of the patient. Often, the volume of fluid required to deliver nutritionally adequate TPN exceeds the optimal fluid intake for the patient. You can remove some of this additional volume using careful ultrafiltration through the ECMO circuit. While we're discussing nutrition, I would like to emphasize that enteral feeding of an ECMO patient via a nasogastric tube is reasonable, provided that there isn't any concern for inadequate gut perfusion.
3: Really great points, Liz. Another important consideration is determining the appropriate level of sedation for your patient. Initially, when cannulating a patient onto ECMO, deep sedation with neuromuscular blockade is indicated. Once the cannulas have been secured, the team can make a decision regarding the target level of sedation necessary. The ideal state would be a patient that is awake, calm, and interactive without compromising the security of the ECMO cannulas. In certain cases, a patient requiring minimal sedation may be able to mobilize out of bed, rehab, and even ambulate while on ECMO. This is traditionally more common in adult patients, but there is greater emphasis on its importance in pediatric patients as well as the field evolves. However, a more common scenario in the pediatric population is a child who requires some degree of sedation to tolerate the endotracheal tube, ECMO cannulas, and the frustration of being immobilized in bed. Although the type of medications utilized for sedation and analgesia are tailored to the needs of the specific patient, it should be noted that some medications are affected by the ECMO circuit. For example, A patient may require a significantly higher dose of a fentanyl infusion to achieve the same level of sedation and analgesia following ECMO cannulation because the circuit sequesters some amount of it.
1: As we discussed, anticoagulation is an important element of ECMO circuit management. Complex biochemical mechanisms are induced when the patient's blood comes into contact with the plastic tubing of the ECMO circuit and areas of turbulent flow, thereby activating the clotting cascade. Often patients require some degree of transfusion of packed red blood cells, platelets, cryoprecipitate, or fresh frozen plasma. But if the rate of replacement is significant, this may be indicative of a larger problem with either the patient or the circuit, such as hemolysis or thrombosis.
0: The selection of antibiotics for surgical prophylaxis at the time of ECMO cannulation and thereafter is typically tailored to the patient's clinical picture at the time of cannulation. For example, in the setting of our myocarditis patient who is electively cannulated under controlled circumstances, a first-generation cephalosporin may be sufficient for prophylaxis of surgical site infection. If there are no additional concerns for infection, antibiotics could be discontinued after administration of periprocedure surgical prophylaxis. However, Broader antimicrobial coverage may be indicated if ECMO cannulation was performed under emergent circumstances, such as eCPR, where sterility may in some cases be compromised, or if the patient's clinical picture necessitated broad antimicrobial coverage, most oftenly seen in septic shock.
1: Finally, to round out our systems-based approach to the care of a patient on VA ECMO, Providing social and emotional support for the family as well as the medical team members is a vital component of ECMO care. ECMO is a life-saving modality, but it's an extreme form of support utilized in the sickest of patients. Setting realistic expectations for the family and the patient care team as well as providing additional support where needed is absolutely vital to the emotional health of our families and our staff. This concludes episode
0: number two of Cardiac ECMO. We hope that you will join us for the third episode in our three-part series, where we will discuss ECMO circuit emergencies, complications, decannulation, and outcomes data. To all of our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much, much more.